Good morning, Redemption. A three, wow, that was a nice one. <laughs> well, three events this month have rattled me, have angered me. The first is the SBC report, which detailed massive abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention with cover-ups and stonewalling. Now, we're not Southern Baptist here, but we are a part of the broader body of Christ. And when you hear so many survivors, so many women, their voices, what they've endured, the horrific injustice, it is right to be angry, to be furious. The second event this month that rattled me was the Uvalde shooting. A mass shooting in an elementary school where 19 children and two teachers were murdered by an active shooter with an AR-15. Children, frightened, scared, and in cold blood. It is right to be angry, to be furious. The third was the Buffalo shooting at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, a racially motivated mass shooting, killing 10 black people and the killer attempting to live stream their murder. He wrote a manifesto detailing his prejudice, his racism, and hatred. In the wake of such horror, it is right to be angry, to be furious. SBC, Uvalde, Buffalo, women, children, race. Against that backdrop, there is a challenge to our passage today, Colossians 3. Now, we are in a series on the book of Colossians, the supremacy of Christ in all of life. And we've seen so far in Colossians 1, we've seen that Christ is the image of the invisible God and he's reconciling heaven and earth. And we saw in Colossians 2 how Jesus has disarmed the principalities and the powers and that we no longer need to be held captive to deceptive ideologies and idolatries and things like that. And then we saw in chapter 3 how we're called in light of the Christ and his gospel to put off the old you and put on the new you to more accurately reflect the image of Christ into this world. Then we come to our passage today, which speaks of women submitting to husbands, of children obeying parents, of slaves obeying their masters. And at first glance, this can seem to possibly justify the mentality that goes into horrific events like those of this last month. It can seem all about power and who's in charge with the danger of legitimating such mistreatment. Passages like these can feel embarrassing, if we're honest. Have you ever felt embarrassed by passages like these? There are times when I've had, when what I wanted to say is I want the verse that says, stop abusing women. I wanted to say, protect children at all costs. I wanted to say, end all slavery now. But I've been surprised when I push beneath the surface of such passages, to often find that there is much more going on. In fact, what if I told you the very reason we want those things today is because of what's going on in this passage? 
That the reason you and I want in our culture an end to abuse, the protection of children, and the abolition of slavery is actually because of what is in this passage. You're crazy, Josh, you might be saying. (laughs) And you may not believe me now, but my goal by the end of this message is to have you convinced that the Christian revolution transformed the world. And that this passage was revolutionary back in its day, and things like this have shaped our culture in ways that we take for granted today, like the waters that we swim in. Jesus has brought a revolution through his people, and what we're going to see in this passage today, and the title of this message is, The Revolution Starts at Home. So let's pick up Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. We read, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The first relationship here is between wives and husbands. Now, why'd you put it in that order, Josh? Don't we often speak of husbands and wives? Yep, but Paul does something revolutionary here. He addresses the wives and he addresses them first. You see, ancient household codes like this were common in the ancient world. You can read many versions of them, and they were typically addressed only to the men. Aristotle, for example, in his book, Politics, he saw the household as like a small city, a microcosm of civilization, the basis of political order. And the three relationships in this household he spoke of were husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. These ancient codes had a similar structure. They were written primarily to, they were written to the head of the household with an emphasis on how to keep control and order in their home. And so it would be like if I walked into your home and I ignored uh, your wife, the wife and children around, I looked at the husband, I only spoke directly to him. I ignored neighbors, others who might be around, I only spoke directly to him. That's what Aristotle did, that's what Philo did, that's what these loads of ancients did that, but Paul does something revolutionary here. He walks into the home, he walks right past the husband, and he speaks to the wives directly. He speaks to them first. This was revolutionary. Wives, you have agency. You are not a pawn of your husband. You are not a second-class citizen. You are not distanced in the shadows. The gospel sees you, and it calls you by name. You are not ignored and marginalized by the gospel. Rather, Jesus sees you, and he calls you by name. He calls you out, and he draws you in, and he speaks to you as one with agency, as a co-heir in his kingdom. Paul does something else revolutionary here. And what he says to the husbands, he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That was unheard of as well in these ancient household codes. You see, there was a power dynamic in the ancient world. In Rome, this was referred to as the patria potesta, the power of the father. The ancient household revolved around the eldest male, the patriarch, at the center. Uh, This was common through much of history and through most of the world, where the eldest male had the responsibility to provide for and to protect extended family, servants, everyone in the household. 
Now, there was a danger that this could become self-serving, could be used to emphasize his comfort and happiness. Roman heads of household could have a reputation for being harsh and even abusive. So what does Paul do here? He calls to the husbands, love, do not be harsh to your wives. Again, this would be like uh, I walk into your house and I, for the husband's like, I speak to your wife first and then I turn to you and I'm like, you better not be mistreating her, right? That's what Paul is doing. He's speaking to them and calling them on the carpet on that front. Now, this was controversial for them back in this day. They weren't used to that. The part that is controversial in our culture today is the wives submit, but the part that was controversial for them back then was husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. You see, the gospel confronts every culture at some point. Paul calls out the husbands, and he calls them to something. Use your power to love and serve your spouse. There is still a power dynamic today between husbands and wives. I think this is most easily seen in its opposites, in its inversions or distortions or corruptions, what I like to call the three A's right, of abuse, abandonment, and apathy, that men are prone generally, not universally, but generally, men are more prone to abuse, to physical, sexual, emotional, and verbal abuse. This is not universal. We've even seen this last month or so in the Johnny Depp trial that, uh, where he was vindicated as a victim of domestic violence. But it's interesting if you were following even there and you heard the tapes, the recordings of Amber Heard that came out where she was saying, nobody's going to believe you, you're a man. Even in the exception, she was playing off the fact, this kind of reality that is well-known and understood, that men tend to have a power dynamic in the relationship. Even the exceptions tend to speak to the norms. Men are more prone generally not only to abuse, but also to abandon, to walk away and leave. This is the tragedy of fatherless households. This is the tragedy of the husband wound or the father wound that many of us have experienced that we know it tends to cut deepest, to cut extremely deep. And for others, may not abuse or abandon, but there is the temptation to apathy, to being there, but not really being there, to being present, but not truly being present. Husbands are more prone to these things, and these are inversions, corruptions, distortions of the divine design. The Christian revolution steps in and calls out how husbands use their power. To those of you in the room who are married, husbands, you have a responsibility. God has given you a responsibility, a power, an implicit authority in your marriage. God will hold you to a higher account for the well-being of your family. This responsibility is there whether you want it or not, whether you see it or not. This responsibility is there whether she recognizes it or not, whether she respects it or not. This responsibility is there. You have it, and God will hold you accountable with how you use it. And this means that if you are twisting verses like these, if you, are pass, you, you know, if you are distorting passages like these to justify your mistreatment of your spouse, then you are violating and manipulating the sacred authority of God's word, and you will be held to account before the judgment throne of God. Husbands, love do not be harsh with 
for wives. Okay, so for wives, what does Paul mean here by submission? Well, let's start first with what it's not. Wives, Paul is not saying here that you need to endure abuse. If you are in an abusive marriage with a pattern of abuse and a verse like this has been misused against you to say say you need to stay, that is not true. Christ is with you. Christ is for you. We are with you and we are for you as your church community. If you want to get out and get safe, we want to help support you as your community. This is not just me talking. That is our official policy as Redemption Church in our membership documents. Paul is also not saying that you need to just do whatever he wants, right? Paul is, this doesn't mean that you have no voice, no agency. This doesn't mean that you have to blindly do whatever he tells you. It doesn't mean you have to be there on demand for him. It doesn't mean you have to have sex with him whenever he wants. No, that is a twisting, a distortion of what Paul's saying here that violates other themes that we see clearly in Scripture. Next, Paul also is not saying here, all women must submit to all men. That's not what he's saying. He's speaking to wives and husbands in a covenant relationship that's designed to image and reflect Christ and the church. And finally, Paul is not saying here that you need to do anything that would violate the lordship of Jesus. Think of of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, where she went along with her husband in lying and greed and was judged with him for it. We see throughout Scripture that if anybody calls you to go against the way of Jesus, to go against God, it doesn't matter their influence, their position, their power, or their authority— You don't violate your conscience. Your first allegiance is to God, not others. Wives, your first allegiance is to Jesus, not your husband. Okay, so that's what it's not. What is submission? I believe that it is a general, ongoing attitude of respect and humility towards your husband. The spirit of it is to empower your husband, going, do you recognize the weight of responsibility the implicit authority that God has uniquely put on his shoulders? Do you have his back? Are you empowering him, helping him to lead your family? I believe submission can also be seen in contrast to its opposites, and the opposites or the inversions here would be things like berating, controlling, nagging, an attitude of contempt. It's the, you always do this, you never do this, you're always like this. Now, men sometimes can act that way too, but generally, by and large, I found this temptation is more prone to wives than to husbands. For example, I've done a lot of premarital counseling over the years, and often one of the first things that I'll have couples do is talk about their parents' marriages that they grew up in and describe what are the good things you want to take into your marriage and what are the not-so-good things, what are the bad things you want to move away from and, and, and leave behind. And when couples talk about their frustration, I've found when people talk about frustrations with their parents' marriages, one of the most common themes I've heard is some version of dad was apathetic and mom was a nag. Right? Dad was apathetic and mom would kind of berate or just control from the side. And I think those two things are inversions of this divine design that can play off of each other. And Paul is saying here, don't be that couple. Those things feed off each other. 
Husbands, don't check out, check in to love and serve and lift up your wife. Wives, don't berate and seek to control, rather honor and recognize the place that God has put him in and empower and lift him up in that. Now, wait a second, Josh. Isn't this just an accommodation to ancient culture in this passage? Some say, hey, that's just the way it was back then. It's not now. This doesn't apply anymore, but we can't get away with that here. Paul says it is fitting in the Lord. He's saying, he doesn't say that about slavery. He doesn't say that about other things. He says, but this one is fitting in the Lord, saying it's creational, not just cultural. There are other places where he speaks to a husband and wife being iconic of Christ and the church, respectively, which means that uh, your marriage, for those of you who are married, your marriage is designed to be a beautiful picture of the gospel where the husband and wife's places in this picture are not simply interchangeable. Rather, a husband's sacrificial love for his wife is to be a picture of Christ laying down his life for the church. Husband, you're to be the first to die to yourself, to lay down what you want for the sake of your spouse. And similarly, where a wife's submissive respect for her husband is to be a picture of the church's extravagant response to Christ where this is not a race to the top for who's in charge, but this is a race to the bottom where how can we each use our respective places in this creational design to outdo one another in loving and serving one another and lifting each other up. The sweet spot is pursuing harmony together and unity together in Christ, seeking Jesus together before your own will and your own way, that together you are seeking to put Jesus at the center and seeking unity and agreement and harmony with one another in marriage. This sparked a revolution in the ancient world. The early church radically empowered women with agency, and they were flocking to the church more than the men because of it. Men were called to account in how they used their power as the early church confronted abuse, abandonment, and apathy. Respected historians like Tom Holland and Rodney Stark have traced how the reason we value things today in our culture, like women's rights, like equality of value, like resistance to abuse, is the impact of this Christian revolution on the world. Okay, well, next we move to children and parents. Verse 20, Paul says, children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. He goes on and says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So here he was to children and parents, and like wives, children are given dignity. Here they are addressed first with agency and ability to please the Lord in how they treat their parents. That's worth recognizing. We see children differently today than they did back then. Uh, Today, we often think of the kids as cuddly and cute, want to post the Instagram photos and look everyone, look how amazing they are. But back in the Greco-Roman world, they were seen more as a nuisance, an inconvenience, until they could grow old enough to contribute. So this was revolutionary. Paul gives agency, speaking directly to children as members of the community of faith. And he calls them to obey their parents, not because their parents have power, but because it pleases the Lord. This means youth. I know many of our youth are over in Redemption, our amazing Redemption Kids ministry right now, and that is awesome, and they need to hear this too. But for the youth who are here, those of you who are here today, it is important that you know you have an ability to please Jesus. 
You have an ability to bring delight to the heart of God, that you do not need to wait until you're older to, to serve God and to live for him. You can actually serve him right now, and one of those ways is by how you live within your family. You have agency in how you treat your parents and your family. And this is something through which you can please the Lord. Well, fathers are also commanded here not to provoke their children. Why? He says, lest they become discouraged. Uh, Ancient fathers could have a reputation for being harsh, and Paul wants them not to discourage, but to encourage their children, to pour courage and confidence into them that they would know that their father is with them and for them and has their back. I was at a uh, father-son retreat last weekend, and it was a blast. It was awesome. We had like archery with bows and arrows. We had like BB guns, and there was fishing and tomahawk throwing and like uh, s'mores and camping, the whole whole deal. Uh, But the highlight of the weekend was what we called the victory circle where there were about a dozen of us dads with our, our kids, and we put, put, put our sons around in a circle, and one at a time, each father would call his son out, would bring his son out into the center of the circle, and would look him in the eye. For many of us, that meant getting down on, you know, getting on our knee and look him in the eye, and he would speak into him what he saw in him, the talents, the gifts, the ability. He would speak courage and blessing and life. And it was crazy just being there because I was around a lot of these guys. There were a lot of these guys that were like the macho, muscular men like me, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't need to laugh that hard. Come on. (laughs) Yes, but a lot of these guys, and there was like hardly a dry eye around the campfire because everyone was just, man, it was breaking us open just to to look into our, our, our children's lives and to speak life and courage into them. And you could see the impact in their kids as they were being spoken into. You could see the look in their eyes as this courage was being spoken into them. Fathers, you have a power in your children's lives. Mothers, you have a power in your children's lives. Parents, you have been given a power in your children's lives, and God has given you this power to bless them, not to curse them, to, that you would be able to raise them up, not to leave them behind, that you would see them, not overlook them, that you would not simply seek to control their behavior, but that you would shepherd and care for their heart. And the reality is, like, time flies. Like, it's not just a cliche. So for the parents in the room, don't let it slip by. Make the most of it. Don't provoke your children. Pour into your children. I know that for some of us that is hard because of your own relationship with your own parents. It was not all that great. Maybe your parents weren't there for you, but the power and beauty of the gospel is that you can break the cycle. It was interesting, around that campfire, uh, after the kids went to bed, a lot of us dads were hanging out and getting to know some of them more, and a common theme was how many of these parents were actually seeking to break cycles of the wounds they had of a father who had wounded them or had walked away, but now they had encountered Jesus and they wanted things to be different. And what struck me, where their dad hadn't been there for them, but Jesus has got a hold of them, they were working to break the cycle. And what struck me in the midst of this is that we'll often talk about sin having a generational impact, 
But the reality is that redemption does too. Redemption does too. Right? We will talk about how sin can have a generational impact, that addiction and abuse and dysfunction, it can work its way down the family tree, down the family line through the generations. But the beauty and power of the gospel is that redemption can have a powerful generational impact too. That when Jesus gets a hold of your life and he begins to heal you of your past, you're able to pass things on to your children that maybe you never had that you're able to lift them up higher on your shoulders than you could have ever gone yourself because you may be still carrying some of those scars and those wounds because of what Jesus is doing in your life. They may have an opportunity to not have to experience those same kind of things that you experienced. And maybe their children and their children can actually be building upon health to be at a healthier place, a better place, standing upon your shoulders than you and I were able to be ourselves. We named this church Redemption, because we believe redemption is real. And I want to speak a blessing over those of you who are parents, your families right now. I just, man, Jesus, I just pray, God, that you would bless our families, Lord, that our next generation of children would raise up knowing courage and life and blessing in you, God, and that they would go on, Lord, to lead a stronger life even, God, because of, man, the, the, the things that they experience in, God, this community of faith and these families, this place, Jesus, that your presence Lord, bless and empower our children for the sake of your gospel and your glory, Lord, to, man, to go farther than we ever could ourselves. I would suggest to you that this higher, more dignified way that we tend to see children in our culture today is another result of the Christian revolution, of the Jesus who said, let the little ones come to me, and who proclaimed the kingdom of heaven belongs to such Well, finally, we move to slaves and masters. In verse 22, we read, Bondservants, or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you, yourself, you also have a master in heaven. So finally, we move here to slaves and masters, and this final part of the household code is possibly the hardest for us. In America, we have a history of chattel slavery in the first few centuries of our country's history and with a legacy and impact all the way down to today. Is the Bible endorsing this horrific sin and injustice? No. Few observations. First, it's helpful to recognize that slavery in our culture is not the same as in the Bible. For example, American slavery was built on a foundation of kidnapping and forced labor. In the Bible, we read that kidnapping to make someone a slave merited the death penalty. Exodus 20, verse 16. We also read in places like 1 Timothy 1.10 that slave traders are included in those who won't inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible explicitly condemns the kidnapping and forced labor, the foundation, very foundation of the transatlantic slave trade. Slavery in the Roman Empire was mostly voluntary. 
Over 30% of the Roman Empire were slaves, roughly a third. Now, why? Uh, well, the poor often sold themselves into slavery or bond servitude to pay a debt or to escape poverty. It'd be something like you can't pay your credit card or your underwater on your mortgage, and you would go to someone's household and say, hey, I'm going to indenture myself to you as a servant. I'm going to bond myself to you. I won't work for others. I'll work for your home in order to work off, pay off this debt. As the scholar Andrew T. Lincoln observes, no one in ancient times could conceive of an economic or labor structure without slavery. While there were brutal forms of it, the concept, indentured labor in which the laborer was not free to market his skills to other employers, was considered a given. So this was not a great thing. Bond servants could still be treated uh, poorly or harshly at times, but it was a different thing from what we tend to think of. And this is why some translations like ours use bond servant rather than slave is to say man, there's something different with indentured servitude and bond servanthood in the ancient world going on in some of our associations today. Another difference is that bond servants in the Roman Empire, it was not race-based. The Romans and Greeks had Roman and Greek bond servants. That's a crucial difference from slavery in America and its legacy here, which was horribly based on race. Another observation here is that the Bible radically raised the bar on the ancient world when it came to slavery and bond servants. We see this in the Old Testament and the Exodus where God's foundational act of salvation is to identify himself with a people enslaved and to liberate them from their oppression, to reveal himself to the surrounding nations and empires of the world as the deliverer who is with and for his people to free them from their bondage. In early America, in what were often called the slaveholders' Bibles, slaveholders would often cut out the book of Exodus and cut out some of these parts for fear that it would inspire critique resistance to the institution they held sway over. Also through the Old Testament, we read of the laws of protection for bond servants where God would say, hey, remember you yourselves were slaves in Egypt, so don't treat those who serve you in the same way. Laws such as killing a bondservant merited the death penalty. In Exodus 21, it also said that permanently injured bondservants had to be set free. Leviticus 25, God said, do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Parents were prohibited in the Old Testament from selling children into sexual servitude, as happened then and sadly still happens in places of the world today. Bond servants were given a Sabbath rest in Israel along with the rest of the household, unlike Egypt. Here in the New Testament, uh, the bondservants are spoken to first, again, given agency, and the masters are given an accountability before God, being told that you yourself have a master in heaven, God, and he is watching, and you will be held accountable with how you treat them. So <clears throat> what does this mean for us today? Well, in one respect, I would suggest that you and I, that we're all masters today, right? Like it's it's not a one for one, but all of us have servants who prepare our food at McDonald's or Chick-fil-A, right? Like all of us have those who chauffeur us around by Uber or Lyft. All of us have people who carry our stuff around in Amazon deliveries and packages. And it's not a one for one, but in seeking to apply the heart of the state, when there are people in relation to their work that you have influence and a certain power over in relationship to, and this passage is telling you and I that how you treat them matters. So speak kindly, tip 
well. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> God sees you and will hold you to account. In another respect, I believe some of you perhaps feel like bond servants today, right? Stuck in a dead-end job with a boss you don't like, making widgets and trying to get out from under a mountain of debt. This passage says that your work still has dignity. Verse 23, where Paul says, you can still do good work as for the Lord and not for men. Maybe you're in a spot where your boss or employer is mistreating you. Well, Paul says here that you can take hope in verse 25 because he will be paid back for the wrong he has done. With God, there is no partiality. God doesn't treat him better because he's your boss. Or got more power. There's no partiality with God. And the big picture here, this sparked a revolution. Miroslav Volf, the respected theologian, he says that this kind of teaching in passages like Colossians here, it so transforms the master-servant relationship that while it is still there in form, the servant is still to work for their employer, slavery has been abolished even if its outer institutional shell remains. The most radical thing the early church did, historians would observe, is the common table, is eating at the common table, where master and bondservant, every ethnicity, Jew and Greek, male and female, uh, children and parents, like everyone, regardless of ethnicity or class, shared the common meal at the table together. And this was radically revolutionary back then, where you just kind of ate with your own crew, right? And going, no, like in Christ, he has broken down the barriers and he is bringing his people together. In the medieval world, in medieval Christendom, some sectors of Christian became the first in history to abolish and undo slavery. Later in the modern world, uh, Christian leaders like William Wilberforce led the charge in the abolition of slavery. Now, we must own that the church has not always been perfect. We need to own and acknowledge and repent for the ways that as the church, we have blown it at times in our country's history particularly. But the church has, on the bigger historical scene, led the way in this revolution to unravel slavery. So let's go back to where we began. Women, children, slaves, a race. Why do you hold those beliefs you do today? Why do we believe so strongly that women shouldn't be abused, that children should be protected, and that slavery is wrong and racism unjust? You can say it's obvious, everyone does, but it's not. Most societies throughout history have not emphasized these. It's because the Christian revolution radically transformed society. Respected historians like Tom Holland in Dominion and Rodney Stark in The Rise of Christianity have demonstrated how these beliefs infiltrated our society through Christianity, through passages like these, and communities of Jesus' followers who believed and embodied that the revolution starts at home. That the revolution starts at home in our most intimate relationships, those we are in closest proximity to. You see, we often want to start more distant, 
Things like, what, what are your posting our opinions online or how did you vote and whatever. And, and I'm not saying those things don't matter. I do think those things can be important and matter and there's good room for public discussion. But we can often emphasize the things that are very distant to us. And I, I, what I would suggest is that we can overvalue sometimes the impact of these things that are very distant to us. And we can undervalue the impact of how we live in those, in, with those in closest proximity to us. What kind of alternative community we are becoming here in Tempe. It's interesting to me that Colossians starts cosmic. It starts big, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's reconciling heaven and earth, the peace of his blood shed on the cross. Jesus has inaugurated the revolution on this cosmic level. And then it moves to, man, Colossians 2, he has disarmed the principalities and powers. You no longer have to live captive to these ideologies and idolatries and things that enslave the world. And then it moves to chapter 3. You can put off the old you and put on the new you. You can be conformed in the image of Christ and reflect his glory into the world. But now, as Paul's coming to the close of this Colossians letter, he brings it home and he says, that's revolution that Christ has inaugurated. It starts at home, like in your most intimate, proximate relationships, the people you are closest to. And again, there is a place for all of what we do, but I would challenge us not to overvalue the impact of things that are distant and undervalue the significance before God of how we live with those in closest proximity to us. Christ is calling you to become a revolutionary, to embody his revolutionary love right here in your most intimate relationships in your community. If you are single, these same principles apply to you. This morning, I would encourage you to ask the question, where do you have power. Perhaps it is a friend you know who looks up to you, and Christ is calling you to love and not be harsh. Perhaps it is the influence that you have at work where Christ is calling you to treat those justly and fairly rather than use that influence to your own advantage. Perhaps it is a niece or a nephew or a mentor relationship as Christ is calling you to go, how can I pour courage and life into them? On the flip side, you can also ask, where can you empower? Perhaps it's a boss you're under and you're working for them and Christ is calling you to work for them as you would unto the Lord. Or an aging parent that you have and perhaps Christ is calling you to stop ignoring that parent and actually pay attention to them, which pleases the Lord. For those of you who are married, I would say, if you're struggling in your marriage right now, you are not alone. There has been a flood of stories, both bigger picture nationally, but even our own congregation marriages that are struggling right now. My sense has been, man, the impact of the pandemic and everything that hit a while ago, and we we're all kind of on adrenaline, and now sort of the, once everyone's gotten settled into life again as normal, all that impact is coming back, and people, many are struggling. Perhaps you're here this morning and it feels like your home is on fire. We want to be a community that cares for you, that we are here for you, that uh, myself, our pastoral team, our leaders, our care ministry, we want to help care for your marriages. And if you feel right now like your marriage and your house is on fire, come and we want to 
Just say, we're, we're here for you. Come and seek help. Don't feel like you have to do this alone. You were not made to do this alone. And I would also say for others of you, one of the sad things is often things don't come to, people don't come to get help until the home is on fire. And it's way better, way, way better if we can start back when there are just the sparks, right? And so some of you right now in your marriages and your closest relationships, there are the sparks. I would encourage you, don't turn a blind eye to those things. Don't ignore them. Come and seek help, get help. We want to wrap around as church community and care for marriages that we would actually seek to build up healthy, loving, flourishing marriages that embody the revolutionary love of Christ and his gospel. We're here for you. Christ is calling you wherever you are at in this season to become a revolutionary in your work, in your family, in your friends. And so I want to take some time now to ask, what relationship is Jesus calling you to embody his revolutionary love? Is there a specific person, a specific relationship, a specific environment where the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart right now to make a shift in how you approach that person, how you approached that environment. We're going to take some time in prayer now, and I want to invite you to listen. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to minister to each of us, to each of you in your particular situation, because we're all in different spots, and I don't know, but he knows. And so let's create some space for prayer right now. And I want to invite you to be attentive to, God, where are you calling me to embody the revolutionary love of Christ in my life? So let's take a moment and pray. Jesus, thank you that you, God, have inaugurated this revolution, Lord, your revolutionary love that is reconciling and healing and restoring creation. Uh, God, we want to take some time right now and just come before you, and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you administer to each and every person here, to each of us, and ask that you might reveal, Lord, speak, disclose, God, if there is a relationship, a person, an environment that we need to make a turn in that, that you would call your daughters, your sons to, uh, to approach maybe differently, God, that you would make us ambassadors of your revolutionary love. And so I'm going to create some space now, some quiet, some silence. And I, I just ask, uh, Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, that you administer and reveal that to your people. Jesus, this morning as we come to the table, we come to you, the true revolutionary Jesus. The bread, a sign of your body given, and the wine of your blood shed, and given for us in revolutionary love. Just thank you that you have entered a world torn apart by greed and misused power and all of the problems that we, we find ourselves in living amidst, Lord, that you came and you laid down your life 
in revolutionary love for us, Lord, to gather us to yourself and to make us a people who embody your revolutionary love to the world. Lord, we offer our lives to you, ourselves to you, and God, we say that, yeah, we want to embody, Lord, your revolution right here at home, right here in Tempe, right here in our family, right here with our friends, right here in our workplace. We'd be a people that use whatever position or power or place you put us in, God, to lay down our lives for one another and to serve and lift each other up as you have done for us, our Savior. Jesus, it's in your mighty name that we pray, our revolutionary King. Amen. Amen. We're to come now to have a worship, to worship Christ, our revolutionary King. As we do, I'd invite you to come to the table. If you are a follower of Jesus, this table is here for you, the bread and the wine, a sign of his blood, body given and blood shed. We're going to worship. We're going to sing praise to our King, to lift him high as our revolutionary Savior and his extravagant love. And if you need prayer this morning, maybe there's some stuff that, man, got stirred up in you from uh, this message, or maybe there's just some stuff you've got going on in life that you need prayer for. There are going to be people over at the prayer doors who would love to pray with you. I want to invite you to take advantage of that and go for prayer. But let's all stand together and let's worship Christ, our revolutionary King. <laughs>